Hello and welcome to the Truth and Grace podcast. I'm your host, Brittany Rust, and I want to thank you for joining me today. On Truth and Grace, we tackle tough topics in the Christian church, and we do it by strengthening believers through God's word and pointing to his abundant grace. I don't sugarcoat it over here, but I do hope to wrestle with a messy in grace. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to ask for your help. If you enjoy this show, would you mind subscribing and leaving a review? By doing both, you greatly help this show in its visibility and just getting it out there to more people. And let's be honest, the church, and I mean the Big C Church, is facing some tough times and is in a bit of a mess, so anything that helps facilitate healthy discussion and points to Jesus is a benefit. Am I right? So please consider helping with the subscribe and a review. All right, now on today's episode, I want to talk about something that's going to either make people uncomfortable and ruffle some feathers, connect with a hurt or bad experience you may have had in the church, or you might be sort of ambivalent about it because it hasn't directly affected you. Wherever you are on the spectrum, I hope you'll be open to the topic and allow it to prod at you a bit. Because today, I'm going to be talking about discrimination within the church, particularly as a relates to gender, race, and nepotism. And let me say up front, you might think there isn't much of a problem here, but as someone who has been in church ministry for 16 years, I'm telling you, it's a problem. And the fact is, it's not really going to change until individuals start standing for equality in even the most seemingly insignificant ways, like refusing to give into guys club at work or You know, perhaps that's being intentional about raising a race conscious child. It's going to be thought patterns. These things matter and it starts with each person. And that means you doing the right thing and even those small decisions. Now I'll start with the least offensive, but perhaps also the least acknowledged and that's nepotism. And you'll see this all over, but especially in the church. Now, I'm not condemning the act, and honestly, I kind of get why it happens so much, but it's not always necessarily right. Now, you might be wondering what I mean when I say nepotism, and asking if it's really a problem. When I talk about this issue, I'm referring to people being promoted to senior levels within the organization because they are family. And you'll see this in the church a lot. And oftentimes, this is happening while people who aren't related go overlooked. I'll give you a few examples. Now, I have a friend who, you know, she's a very godly, mature, just phenomenal woman who once worked for a well-known ministry. And if I said it, you would know it. She worked really hard and gave so much to the ministry for several years. When she expressed a desire to contribute to the ministry in new ways using her gift of writing, it wasn't well received. And eventually she was sort of pushed out because of her desire to grow in the organization. Yet, as the leader's children have married, all of their spouses and all who are fairly young are being extended large platform opportunities, not because they bring experience in ministry or maturity, but because they are family. And I guarantee if those people were not married to those children, they would not be in their current roles. Now, I am all for giving young people opportunities, but as someone who was given a lot of responsibility in ministry at a young age and I crippled under the pressure, I'm an advocate for letting maturity foster before a platform. And yet so many young people across the world whose parents lead large churches or ministries are being given large roles too soon. And one day that pressure of too much too soon will likely hurt them. But I do get it. 
Ministry is hard and often isolating, so more often than not, leaders live and work with a very small circle of trusted friends and coworkers. So it's easy to promote family because you know you can trust them. You have a foundation with them. But, you know, isolation from others is an excuse for limited promotion. And furthermore, opportunity shouldn't be reserved for for the physical family. But because you know what? We're all family. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ. And so the, the role, those opportunities should go to who God has called, not the safe preference of a person. And sometimes it will be a family member, but sometimes it won't. And this isn't reserved for children, but you'll often see this happen with spouses, particularly wives, which again, I'm all for women having a seat at the table. And um, we're going to talk about that here in a moment. And I, and I love seeing women serve alongside their husbands. But a lot of times, the only women you'll see leading or having a platform within the church is the spouse or daughter of the pastor. Am I right? And that leaves most women who, who have a passion and a gifting to lead sitting on the sidelines yearning to do more, but with no opportunity. I share a story, and this will tie into the gender bias I'll touch on in a minute, but this this is a true story. So when I was um, new in ministry, I was like 20, I was expressing to a um, you know a pastor's wife that I had a desire to be in ministry. And, you know, that God had called me to, to full-time vocational ministry, to write and to serve in the church. And she said, well, you know, you'll have to marry a pastor, right? And when she said that, I thought, no, I didn't know that. And why should that be? Like, why is my calling dependent on who I marry? Like, why is it, why is it connected to a man? And I really struggle with that. But now that I've been in ministry for 16 years, I so get why she said that. I don't think her heart was in the wrong place. I think she just knew how it is, how it's really hard for a woman to be in ministry unless you were married or, you know, unless you're the daughter of of the pastor. I mean, those those positions, those opportunities aren't given to women very often. And so if you're not married, if you're not the daughter, like you really have to it's really hard getting there. I'll be honest. I can't tell you how many times like I've been asked to step aside from a role or to make, you know, for someone, um, for a pastor's wife. And it's not even that they had the desire to do it. It's just, and I, and I'm sort of advocating for them in that well, there's a lot of times they don't have the desire to do that. They are not gifted with that, but they're expected to do that, right? Because they're married to someone on staff. And so we just have to be careful about that, you know, because the church is full of gifted and passionate and willing individuals, you know, who aren't a family member. And I just, you know, if you're a leader, I want to get you thinking about who you use in the church. I want you to think about this, really extend your circle and bring others into your world. There are many in your church eager to serve and anointed to leave. And I just, you know, I encourage you to give them those opportunities. You know, so that's sort of nepotism in a nutshell. I didn't want to talk a lot about it, but I do see it quite a bit as I've been in ministry. Um, and I just, I advocate for basically all the people who, um, who have a desire to serve in the church, but those opportunities are being passed over, um, you know, for people that are related to those on staff. So anyway, just putting that out there, just as a thought for leaders to be thinking about that, to extend your circle. And I'm going to leave it at that. Uh, what I really want to talk about is um, gender and race bias within the church. And we're going to we're going to touch on gender bias first. And, you know, this is a hot topic right now with the recent comments made by John MacArthur. 
Now, if you haven't heard the story, you know, John MacArthur was um, speaking at a conference a couple weeks ago, and there was a panel, all men, and there was an MC. And the MC, they decided to play this game. The MC would say a word, and then those on the panel would respond with the first word that came to their mind. And the MC said, Beth Moore. And John MacArthur immediately said, go home. And then there was another pastor who proceeded to say some very unkind things about her that I don't think anybody would, people who know her, say it's not true. I would even say just observing her for so long that that's not true about her. But then John MacArthur proceeded to, you know, go further about women. I shouldn't be in, you know, serving leadership and da, 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 da. And you can go and you can watch the video. It's 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 sad. And I'll be honest in that, you know, I've really enjoyed John MacArthur's comment in commentary for many years. Now, I haven't always agreed with him on some issues, but overall, I found some great theological insight from him on the Bible. And in fact, if you read my books, there are some, you know, quotes in there, John MacArthur quotes in there um, in my books. But his recent comments regarding Beth Moore and women in the church is not acceptable. When I heard him say, go home, I actually had to hold back tears because as a woman, it deeply hurt to hear a brother in Christ say that about his sisters. Don't be mistaken. There was no love or kindness in his words, and it fed disunity within the body of Christ, and disunity hurts God. It hurts his heart. There is no doubt that God has always and will always have an important role for women to play in the church. And if you are a woman who desires to serve her creator and people know this, there is a place for you at the table. This world needs the giftings and passions God himself put inside of you. You were not called by men, you, but you were called by God. And if you are a man, please don't be silent about the treatment of women in the church. Stand up for your sisters when you see neglect and hurt. Ask for their input and contributions. Pull up a chair to the table for them. You have no idea how grateful we are when a godly man cheers his sister on. And Beth Moore, you are a trailblazer for so many of us. We can because you did. Thank you for your years of service in the kingdom. We are better off because of your contributions. I want you to know that. And there's so many people that will just wholeheartedly agree with that statement. Now, personally, I've experienced this biased treatment, unfortunately, quite a bit at ministry, and it's been this biased treatment that has deeply hurt me at times and caused deep wounds within me. Guys, I've actually had to go through counseling for this kind of treatment from my male peers within the church, and it's it's been rough, and I'm not the only one. I've met so many women in ministry who have gone through similar situations where I felt the same thing. You know, when I first started off in ministry, I was actually a part of an amazing church that celebrated the gifts of women and allowed the women to bring their gifts to the table. And I was given incredible leadership opportunities in my 20s. And you know what? They never made me feel less than because of my gender. My experience within that church honestly made me unaware that gender bias was even a problem within the church. But then I left and I have worked for several other ministries since then. And I've observed from afar and I've experienced the exact opposite. Guys, I didn't know it was a problem until my mid to late 20s. So it's, yeah, it's a problem. I'm just going to kind of give you a couple stories. These are true stories. And I'm not here to rant or to rave, but I'm just giving you like, for a guy, like, I want you to be aware, like, this is going on. Like, this is what's happening, not just to me. 
but to women all across the church, all around the world. And so I'm just going to give you a few examples, small examples. Now, um, I once worked for a ministry and we all worked in the same room together, one large room. And then there was one pastor who had an office and every, and most of the staff was male. There was three female and the rest were male. And, but the other two women staff members were often offsite. And so I, a lot of times I may have been the only woman there. Now, um, there was one, you know, actually this happened more than once, but the, all the men would go into the pastor's office. He had a video game system in his office. All the men would pile into his office and shut the door and they would be in there for an hour. And, um, I could hear them laughing and playing and joking. And I was the only one I was sitting outside in the office working. And do you know how that made me feel? It's not about the video game. It's not about you know, the fun, it was about like, there's dialogue going on, um, that I wasn't a part of, like my, my team was partaking in an activity that I did not get to be a part of. Like it was this boys club. And, um, you know, I didn't get to be a part of that fun. I didn't get to be a part of that bonding time or that dialogue. And that was, that was hard. You know, um, I, I once had a role where, um, I brought leadership to a certain ministry and there were, um, there was a male volunteer, two male volunteers that had, um, been appointed to <clears throat> help me with the ministry on some of the, on some of the details. And, um, they were older men, they, you know, businessmen, and they never included in me in anything. Like they would always bypass me and go to my boss, who is the pastor. Time and again, they would bypass me and go to the boss with their ideas or what they think needed to be changed. I can't tell you how many times a decision was made about the ministry that I was not a part of. Like I was told this is how it's going to be. And I wasn't brought to the table for those conversations, even though I was the one bringing direct leadership to that ministry. They, I would constantly include them on everything, every email. I showed them incredible respect, but they never showed me the respect in return. They would never include me on emails, you know, to the pastor. They would go play golf and go get dinner with the pastor. I was constantly left out of the loop. It, I was just bypassed. And I would go to my pastor and talk about, you know, some of this, you know, this lack of respect I saw. And, you know, he'd say, yeah, you're right. But then nothing would change. And um, I can't tell you how, like, that was one of the most painful experiences in ministry. And um, just the total lack of respect shown to me. If I was a guy, that would have been different. I mean, the fact that they went to a male superior, but it hurt me. And I can't, I would legit go home crying at night. I'm, I'm an eight. I don't cry um, very often. I'm not I'm one to show a lot of vulnerability, but for months I would go home crying and just be so stressed out and so burdened because I felt such a lack of respect. And um, I didn't feel like I was able to do my job well. I was hindered to do my job well because of this. And it was allowed to go on. It was just people actually used to just say, oh, well, you know, that's the boys club. It doesn't make it okay. That shouldn't be okay. I mean, I remember so many women volunteers coming up to me and saying they felt like they weren't seen and they weren't heard. Um, like the men were um, by those two male leaders, volunteer leaders. Um, so it just, it was, it was a problem. You know, it was a problem. And they would say that, that it wasn't gender bias, but it, it was, it was, um, I was also told I wasn't allowed to have, you know, to do stage like announcements or any, every, every other, all the male, all, we all had the same titles. All the men were allowed to, but I wasn't allowed to. I mean, so it's just things like that where room wasn't made at the table for women. 
And I honestly felt so utterly worthless in these moments and in these, you know, situations. I felt like I had no value. And I'm not the only one. Women all over the world stay, you know, still face limitations within the workplace and the church because they are perceived as the weaker vessel. And that just isn't true. The Bible talks often and respectfully of women and their role in the kingdom. How many were used by God to lead, to finance, to prophesy, and more? And that's just the ones we know about. You know, Miriam led a nation in worship. Deborah was a political leader in Israel during the time of the judges. Esther saved her people. Jesus shared theological truths with Martha. It was women at the cross as Jesus died and women at the tomb when he resurrected. Phoebe, Junia, Priscilla were influential in the early church as teachers, elders, and leaders. And even Paul references women in the New Testament who prophesied and led. Now, you know, there's a lot of, you know, different thoughts on what Paul was saying in the New Testament about women. There's a couple verses that people disagree on, including John MacArthur would, you know, say these verses are why women shouldn't be in leadership and shouldn't be teaching. Um, but they're just misinterpreted. And so I'm, I'm, um, I found a very thorough, very well-researched, well-written three-part series about women in leadership written by the Assemblies of God Influence Magazine. And I'm going to post that examination of what the Bible says about women in ministry in the show notes. If you go to my website, go to the podcast and click on this episode, there are show notes and you can find that three-part series in there. And I would encourage you, if you have any just confusion about what the Bible says, maybe you're just wondering what the Bible says about women in ministry, leading, serving in the church, I would encourage you to go check that out. But, you know, as far as some practicality to this issue for the men, especially, you can do so much to help your sisters, you know, invite us into the room and bring us to the table. Like just include us, you know, there shouldn't be, um, you know, there should be women included in those um, higher level you know, teams making, helping to make decisions, bringing insight into the body. Women make up more of the body than men. And so women should be there because they understand, um, they, they can bring insight that maybe men don't always see. And that, and that's just a part of like what God has put inside of us, the different characteristics and qualities of God that he's put within us, you know, as for our input and insight, um, create opportunities at all levels for our gifts. You know, it shouldn't just be reserved for women to be in the kitchen and the hospitality team or to greet, but like at all levels, like we are gifted, you know, in several different areas and, you know, don't be afraid to include us because you're afraid of offending or, you know, creating an awkward situation. Don't be afraid to include because you might feel like it'll be awkward and certainly don't leave us out because, um, you know, don't be leaving us out um, because it gives the men permission to be, you know, a little bit more relaxed, you know, relaxed, so to speak, behind closed doors. Um, sometimes women just aren't brought in because, like, I'm sure the guys playing video games, it would have been awkward for a woman to be there as they joke about certain things, right? That's not okay. That's not okay. Um, and, you know, just be willing to have those conversations and, you know, show us respect you the way that you would for a man. And if another man that you see doesn't speak about us the way that God would, right? You know the father's heart for his daughters. And if someone speaks in a way that is contrary to that than that, then disengage. You know, don't excuse the behavior, but instead be an advocate for us for healthy 
behavior and healthy dynamics and healthy relationships in church culture. I can tell you, it means so much when a brother has our back, truly. And um, yeah, so please be thinking about that, even in your mindset, even in your thoughts about where women have a place, you know, at the table, just be thinking about that, be intentional about that. Now, let's talk about race. And honestly, I don't have any experience and I have very little insight into this area, but I do have an incredible friend. Sherea Calabras, who has some powerful insight into this, and I'm very excited for what she has to share with us. So let's bring her on. Uh, hi, Sherea. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be a part. Yeah. So you and I met actually at work, but um, gosh, I feel mm-hmm. like God's just so connected us and just, um, yeah, our hearts and in yeah. ministry. And um, you wrote a phenomenal blog post on raising a race con- conscious child that I read. And um, man, that was powerful. And so, yeah, I'm just so excited for y'all to hear from her as we talk about race, equality within the church. And um, but yeah, so maybe you could start us off by letting us know just, I mean, you were, you grew up in the church, correct? Yes. Yes, I did. Mm-hmm. Um, I've and been may- in the church my whole life, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. And maybe you could tell us just your experience of growing up in the church um, as an African-American woman. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I can't, I was thinking about it a little bit um, just from some prior conversations that we've had. And I can't really pinpoint like anything that's been distinctly different. I think mm-hmm. that um, growing up in the church, I didn't really notice um, or n- feel the need for race conversations in the context of church. I think now the climate of our country and just kind of the the tension that we're kind of living in calls for, um, I feel calls for um, the church to kind of have a place in that conversation. And so I think that my um, just experience in the church has definitely changed and evolved as um, culture has kind of been pushing more into the church to to ask them, what do you think about this? And what do you think about that? And so um, I think as an African-American woman, um, I find myself looking for churches that um, aren't afraid to have those conversations and, and are very dedicated, intentional, and intentional about creating safe places for um, people of color, especially in the times that we're living in right now. Sure. And I, you know, as <clears throat> I'll be honest, I didn't grow up with um, a lot of African Americans in my community. And so mm-hmm, I kind of mm-hmm. come to this conversation, I'll be honest, a, a little naive, just, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. I, there's definitely been situations where I've been in where I, I haven't quite known what to say. Right. And so I think mm-hmm. maybe there's a lot mm-hmm. of um, us out there who, we we care, but we maybe don't know how to approach no, the conversation definitely. or what we can say to our African American, you know, brothers and sisters. So maybe you can kind of help walk through, like how can how can we be there for um, that, you know, the community? Yeah, no, I think that that's a great great question, and I I think that that question is a good place to start. Um, it's obviously a little overwhelming when you're faced with the reality of, you know, maybe racism or just the experiences of um, African-American friends. And I think that a lot of people don't have a lot of African-American friends in their circle. And that's not something that anyone should be ashamed about. Um, it's very common. It's it's very natural. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that 
one thing that, that I would say is that it's, it's more of the, um, adjusting the subtleties as opposed to, um, thinking that you're, you need to raise your banner and be a part of this huge war and like mm. protest this and speak out about this. Like, I think that the fight that, um, a lot of um, white people are going to be facing is, is the fight of subtleties. If I, if Mm. I could name it. Um, so I think that that looks like we're coming up to Thanksgiving, which is very ironic. Um, but just like, okay, you're in the midst of a conversation. Um, and someone says something that if an, if a person that you knew was African-American was at, at the dinner table, it would offend them. And so I think that really diving into those conversations with, with your friends and families, the ones that um, are are very much steeped in stereotypes um, and being willing to to just address them and confront them. Um, and even the the reason why I wrote that article was because I do believe that um, the work that needs to happen is within the context of people's home and those in those mm. secret places and yeah. those quiet places where nobody doesn't and people don't really know what you're talking about. They don't. They're not able to see your conversations because it's easy to just say all of the right things or, or come off a certain way. But when you're in the context of your home, what are you talking about? What are you saying? What narratives mm-hmm. are you perpetuating mm-hmm. or shutting down, you know, in the name of Jesus, in the name of unity? Like what, what are you creating in your own home and atmosphere? Because really racism, as much as it's a big issue, it's, it's children who were taught a certain thing. Mm-hmm. They were taught yeah. to believe a certain thing. And so I just think that, um, yeah, I just think that it's, really committing to those subtle things and um, just changing the narrative in your home. I mean, what are, what are you watching on TV? Are you watching things that kind of show people of color as criminals, as low income, um, mm. so that now your children just think of people as color as those things? Um, and so it's just little things like that that you may not think about, um, but also just knowing that um, being willing to have the conversation and just ask those questions means so much more. And it means a lot to um, people of color to just acknowledge, like, I don't know, like, I don't know what I don't know. And to not be ashamed of that, but to lead that to conversation. um, Mm. So you would say, you know, I think, yeah, we kind of would rather just stay silent as opposed to maybe feeling like we're going to say the wrong thing Mm -hmm. or, you know, so you would, you would totally, you know, suggest that we do jump in, maybe even if we don't know what to say, at least get the conversation going. 100%, 100%. I don't, I think it's ironic. Um, I don't know if you have been following the the situation with Kirk Franklin and the Dove Awards and um, Mm -hmm. basically like all of that. And I, I think that it's such a big issue, but what stuck out to me was he said, um, it's not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends that mm. hurts the most. Yeah. And that was really powerful to me because I can think of times where things have happened and there have been, and I've had friends who haven't said anything, whether it's I've been followed up in the mall and I, I know that they noticed it and I noticed it and no one said anything mm. because there's that fear that keeps us quiet. Um, but love is not quiet. Like love Mm. is not silent in the face of adversity, in the face of injustice. And so I think from a biblical standpoint, um, we do, we are called to, to, to call out the darkness and to speak to the darkness and to bring light. And you can't be the light if you're going to be silent. 
you're just blending mm. in. You're just allowing the darkness to, to have the final say. And so I think that when you commit yourself to speaking up, even if you don't know what to say, the fact that you, um, are more, you're more concerned with how your, per, your friend of color feels than you are about saying the wrong thing. Like that's what, mm. what you should be more concerned about is supporting them than saying something wrong. Mm, that's really good. Yeah. And yeah, I think that's really good. Um, now in the, you know, within the context of the church, you know, I, I know we had talked about before this, how a lot of churches are segregated um, mm-hmm. in the sense where, you know, it's predominantly African-American or it's predominantly white, but in the cases mm-hmm. where there are those churches, maybe someone's listening and it's a good mix, you know, what would, what would be, what could we say to people who, you know, how can we, gosh, I'm trying to figure out how to word this within the walls of the church mm-hmm. in our own home, local church, mm-hmm. just be um, an advocate for equality and mm-hmm. kindness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, man, it's such a complex thing. I, but I do believe um, all churches, whether you're all black or all white or multi, um, you know, cultural, multi-ethnic, um, I do think that the conversation, like you can't be afraid of conversation. Mm, I've been really yeah. impressed with, there's been some local churches here um, where we are that have really dedicated themselves to talking about these issues and, and, and having a conversation. And I think that a lot of millennials are leaving the church because they don't have anything to say about certain issues that they deal with. They don't have anything to say about um, in inequality and things like that. And so th- if they don't feel like the church has anything to say about it, I don't, I think that they're just leaving because they're like, well, mm. this place, this isn't a safe place. Like I can't be myself. I can't um, bring my hurt and my pain to this church because they're not going to even acknowledge it. Um, yeah. And so I think as much as, you know, I would love it to be this like big thing of like, we're going to have like, I don't know, not a race day, but just like, you know, a lot of conversation. I think that it's more in, um, the small things, whether it's having a night where you just talk about it or, um, having life groups that really encourage people to sit down with people who are different than them. Mm. Um, but I think that even if it's just a small thing of like, if something happens, like shootings are really hard. Like, Mm. The police brutality shootings that we are seeing are very hard because I think that people believe that it's either one or the other. If they say, mm. we're sorry for this black person that was murdered, then they, I think people feel like they're saying we hate cops. And if they say, you know, I'm, you know, I support cops, they're afraid that they're saying I hate black people. Mm, but it's yeah. like you can, there is power in duality. You can care about more than one thing. You can believe you know, in the sovereignty or in the, you know, sacredness of black lives and also think and appreciate police officers. But I think that because of that fear, like churches don't want to make it seem like, oh, well, we do support our our law enforcement. We do support cops. So we're not going to say anything about this. That's hurtful. Mm -hmm. Um, That's hurtful because I mean, if there's a, if there's a shooting, a mass shooting, then I've seen a lot of churches go onto their social media and say, Hey, let's pray for these people. If there's a fire in California, people are like, Hey, let's pray for California. If there's a shooting of an African-American person and it was wrongfully done, it's been, you know, known that it's wrongfully done. It's, it's crickets. You don't hear anything. Mm. 
Um, And so like, you know, what does that say to your, to the people in your congregation who do look like that? And what does that say to the people who the congregation who don't look like that? Mm. It, It says something, even though you're not saying anything, it does say something. Wow. Yeah. So it's, it goes back to that. That silence can almost mm-hmm. speak louder yeah. than anything. 100%. Mm. And so just sort of what I'm gathering and what maybe we can take away um, is that it really comes back to the conversation, like just being willing to have those conversations. Um, even if you don't know what to say, just, you know, get the dialogue started. Yeah. Crack. And then, and I would also add on to that just doing the work for yourself. Like if you really care, if you really want to know how to relate or even be race con- race conscious, be anti-racist, then you have to commit to that work. And there is a level of the conversation happening. And I think that that's a great place to start, but it's also examining your own heart, examining mm-hmm. your own um, biases and um, prejudices. And it can be very subtle. It doesn't mean that you're like, I hate all black people, or I think all Mexicans are dirty, you know, like those really, really, really horrible things that Mm, um, mm -hmm. we think of when we think of racism. Um, And so when we think of those horrible things as racism, it's easy for us to kind of, to kind of think that what we like, the stereotypes that we have aren't that bad. It's not Mm, that bad. Um, Mm -hmm. But I was recently in a conversation with a woman who um, she's a white woman and she's been really wanting to dive into um, learning more just about systematic racism and, and so that she can be there for her friends who are of color. And, um, she was talking to another white friend of hers and her white friend basically said that, um, they were talking about a job that her, her son didn't get. And she basically said, you know, well, the only reason why, um, my son didn't get the job is because of, you know, affirmative action. And this African-American guy took this job from my son, Mm. um, because of affirmative action. At the core, that's that's a very racist thing to say because mm. um, essentially mm-hmm. she's saying there's no way that this black person could be qualified. There's no way that he could be more qualified than my son. And so the only reason why he got this job is because he got a free pass. And mm. so those subtle things are things that you have to be willing to address in your heart um, yeah. and just bring it to the Lord and say, you know, God, like, I don't know why I think this. Um, maybe it's because of a past experience or wound or um, what I saw, but I don't want to think that. I don't want to teach my children that. So just yeah. giving that to the Lord and knowing that he's big enough to to take away those that thought process and those um, judgments that you have against people. Yeah, I know. I think that's, I mean, the way that you've set up that, um, yeah, I've set that up is really, I mean, convicting, even as I'm sitting here listening, I'm thinking about that. Mm-hmm. I really need to even be, yeah, examine my heart. And, mm-hmm. and I think all, there's all of us could do that. You're right. Just mm-hmm. examine our hearts. And why are, why are we thinking these things or saying mm-hmm. these things? Um, so, yeah, I really appreciate you saying that because I think we can all, you know, grow in that. And so, yeah. and that, you know, one of the, one of the things that we've talked about is it starting, and you mentioned this, starting in the home. And mm-hmm. maybe, you know, I'm a parent and I have a white son and I mm-hmm. want him, I want to raise him. When I when I read your article, I was like, man, this needs to be shared with every parent because oh, thank you. we have such a responsibility to raise our children to be godly and to be kind and to be loving mm-hmm. and to be race mm-hmm. conscious. So maybe you can talk through with us a little bit on how we can raise our children to be that way and what we can do in our homes. 
Mm -hmm. I love the word you said about responsibility. I think that that is the first thing is parents acknowledging that you do have a responsibility um, to not, you know, your child is going to be whoever your child's going to be, but Mm -hmm. making, taking on that responsibility to say, you know, I am going to make sure that my child, when he goes into the world, he's not carrying these ideas and ideologies that are going to hurt people that are going Mm -hmm. to separate people and isolate people. He's going to carry this spirit, the spirit of God on him that recognizes people's differences, but um, calls out like who God sees them to be. Um, Mm. So I think that, man, it's such a big topic, but what I would say is um, two things. One, do not teach your child to be colorblind. Don't Mm, teach your child that color doesn't matter, that color doesn't exist. Yes, race is a social construct, that you know we created to kind of create this class system but people are there are people of color there there are differences that people um carry with them and and it's very damaging to say um oh i'm colorblind i am addicted to the show this is us i don't know if you watch it oh um, oh yeah my okay <laughs> it's so good and mm-hmm. i was so impressed with this recent episode when um, Randall's talking to his father on the golf course and um, they're, you know, he's pretty much trying to tell his dad, like, hey, dad, like, I'm going to have some very specific challenges because of my race, because I'm black. And he's trying to explain that to his dad. and His dad's just not hearing it. He's like, mm. all he's hearing is you have to work hard. You have to strive. You know, he's talking to him based on his own experience as a white man, mm. but you can't blame him. Like he's doing what he knows. And, you know, Randall is just getting really frustrated because he feels like his dad can't relate and he feels like his dad's not seeing um, him for who he is. And so mm. his dad finally realizes that race, that Randall's talking about race. And he says, you know, Randall, like, I don't see, when I see you, I don't, I don't see color. Like I don't see race. And Randall looks at him and he goes, well, then you don't see me dad. Mm. And that part just like broke me because that is the biggest thing when you say, like when people would tell me, oh, Sharia, I don't see color. Then it's like, you don't see me. When mm-hmm. I, you don't see my experiences, the things that I experience because of my color, you don't see them. You can't even validate them as real because you don't think that my color is real. You don't think yeah. that me being African-American is real. And so as much as you think that it's a moral thing to do, it's a very damaging thing to do yeah. um, to to tell your children that race doesn't matter and that that color doesn't matter. Um, Mm. Teach your children to see the differences. It's okay. There's nothing wrong with your child saying, look at that black guy. Like, don't feel embarrassed. That is good. He is seeing Mm. a difference. And if someone gets offended, that is on them. But I want to say, let your child explore those things, talk about those things and take away the shame because that when there's shame attached to that, that's why people stay silent. That's why they let, you know, these stereotypes brew in the shadows because mm. one time they said, look at that black guy and mommy got mad at me. So I'm never going to ever talk about race again. I'm mm. never going to talk about color again. Like, yeah. let your children explore those things because they're already connecting the dots. Yeah. I read something that says when someone's, by the time they're like two or three, they're able to, to ex- distinguish between white people and black people. Two or three. Mm, and by yeah. the time they're in kindergarten, they are gravitating towards people that look like them. And so they're already noticing those things. So just creating a safe place for them to explore them in your home is really beneficial. Um, And then the last thing I would say is just being very careful um, about the charitable work that you do. 
um, making sure that the only time, making sure that um, your kid's only time interacting with people of color is not when they're giving out charity, um, yeah. not when they're um, kind of the one up on top in the position of power and more privilege. Um, I think that sitting down and I know it seems so silly, but like inviting someone into your home and sitting down with them or doing something normal with them, like a part of your daily life with a person of color speaks volumes. It speaks volumes. It speaks that even though they look different, they're, they're like me, like they're at my dinner table and that's cool. Like this is where all of the things happened and this is where this shows equality. Yeah. And so I think that those simple things, because it can be very overwhelming um, to think of, I think those t- just simple things of like encouraging your child to talk about differences and not teaching them to be colorblind yeah. and just inviting people who are different into your normal space, um, it, it shows to your child what equality looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, and it gives them the ability to speak up when they see things. Yeah, so. I think that's so helpful and so practical. And, you know, you mentioned sometimes we think we're not racist because, um, well, I'm not, I'm not as extreme as that person or that mm-hmm, statement, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. it goes back to like, we can't just idly go by and just think, well, because I'm not expressing these, what I consider racist statements, I'm okay. I'm raising my children to be okay. But really it does go to being intentional about mm-hmm. about race and mm-hmm. um in even the small moments being aware of that and so mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. i know just our conversation has really kind of opened my eyes to the intentionality of it and mm-hmm. um i hope you know people listening feel the same way too so thank you so much yes. for just sharing yeah. that with us. Well, thank you. I, I hope that I um, made sense. I'm like super passionate about this. So um, I can talk about it all day, but thank you so much just for um, being willing to have this conversation. Um, and it, yeah, I'm excited to just see how people take it and do what they can in their own homes because that's where it starts. So thank you. Yeah, it does. And um, for those listening, I'm going to post um, Sharia's website and your podcast and your Instagram and you and you have your own podcast, correct? That is correct. Yes, I do. I do. Um, it's called Unbow Your Head, which I have not been recording much on it because I've been solo parenting. But yeah, I do have um, a podcast as well. Yeah. So if you're interested in just getting to know her more, I would encourage you to go to the show notes on the podcast page and um, yeah check out her podcast and her website and her Instagram. So yeah, thank you so much for just being here with me today. Yes, Brittany, thank you. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. At the end of the day, the Bible says people will know us by our love for each other. John 13, 34 through 35 says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Another translation says that how we love each other will, it it proves, it proves that we are his disciples. And so, you know, that's how people identify um, love or or identify us as a part of being a Christian um, is by our love. And that says a lot. And honestly, friends, I'm not sure if we, the, you know, the big church, you know, if we've been very good, 
doing that because the world doesn't seem to be interested in the dynamics we have going on right now. You know, we criticize Kanye for proclaiming Jesus, which by the way, go listen to his new album, Jesus is King, because it is straight up fire. And he is, um, it's got some great theology and just encouragement in there. Um, I actually cried in one of them. Like I, it, anyway, it's so good. Um, but you know, we criticize him when we should be celebrating his change, his salvation experience. Um, you know, we cut down sisters in Christ and tell them to go home because we don't agree with their theology. We gossip about each other within the church because of our own insecurities. We, we cast judgment on those unlike us because we're afraid of our differences. If it was purely based on our love for one another, I can see why those in the world have a hard time believing Jesus is king. Why would they want to be a part of a community that seems to tear down more than build up? Christians should be the most beautiful example of love. We should be the ones in the messiest of trenches, serving those who choose a path so radically different than ours. We should be the first to extend hugs and words of encouragement, the first to extend forgiveness and rejoice of repentance. We should be loved because that's exactly who our Savior is and what He represents, denying self for the love of the Father and others. Now, I'm not talking about excusing sin, but we should be the example of how to love another human being. If we are known as a Jesus follower by our love for others, then we better start loving fiercely. That's what will make us stand out in this hurting and broken world. Um, and we, so we can't be tearing each other down. You know, we can't be, um, disengaging from each other. We, sh- we can't be fostering disunity. We have to be advocates for each other. Will you be an advocate for love and equality? Will you you join me in standing up for others within the church, at work, and in in this society we live in? Because I hope so. I hope so. And I hope that this episode has got you thinking just about the biases you may have. You may not even know that you have them, but I hope that you'll pull away and examine your heart and your thoughts to see that if you you do and, and ask God to help you in that area. I thank you for joining me today. If this podcast is ministering to you or you think others might find it interesting, please subscribe and leave a review. A review helps this podcast grow, which helps to get the word out to people besides you. You can also become a regular contributor to the show and to Truth and Grace Ministries through Patreon, and you can find a link to that in the show notes. Tune in again next month as we tackle tough topics in Truth and Grace. In the meantime, you can find more information about me, read weekly devotionals, and find out what I'm doing around the web at www. See you next time.